Lord, I am not preaching on anything that I have mastered by any means, but I pray that you would work in each of us according to your glory and your gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. As we were blessing the children just a moment ago, I wonder if anybody uh, also prayed as I did that they would get a full week of school in this week. (laughs) As a child, I had uh, no doubt that I was destined for greatness as a professional football player. Uh, I was a little bigger than most of my friends, and so I was sure that I had the body for it. Uh, Never mind that I'd never played a down of Pop Warner, or that I was really terrible at two-hand touch. Um, I was pretty good at backyard tackle football with kids from my own suburban neighborhood, and uh, and to me that looked a lot like what the pros played. So, uh, plus uh, there was a player named Mean Joe Green. Do you remember Mean Joe? And uh, some people called me that uh, as a sort of nickname, which I thought was awesome. I'm not sure that was a compliment. Now that I think about it. Um, But I fully expected that one day I would have my own name on the back of my jersey, that the crowd would go wild as the PA announcer screamed, It's Gibbs for the touchdown! And I would be carried off the field on the shoulders of my teammates and right into the Hall of Fame. It was all planned out. It was totally realistic. Until I got to high school and I started to play actual football. And uh, it turns out I had all the speed of an offensive lineman and all the size of someone who rode the bench. Um, I did work hard and I finally earned a starting position on the offensive line uh, uh, my senior year, but two days before the first game blew out my knee. And so here I am today. But um, I'm still trying to get Andrew to print our names on the back of our stoles. Now, that's a, that's a true example, but a, a sort of a cartoonish example. Uh, but I think that in, in some regard, we all have uh, visions of our own greatness. Now, uh, those visions may get further inflated if things tend to go our way, or they may get revised substantially if things don't go our way. But we typically start, at least, with visions of greatness, whether it be glory or beauty or wealth or you know, what, what have you. And that tendency, I would say, actually has a good origin because we are created in the very image of the most glorious, greatest, most beautiful being that there is, God himself. But our fallen nature bends that desire for glory back in uh, on ourselves and such that we, we want to be little gods unto ourselves. And, and that could be a whole sermon uh, right on its own. But this morning, based on our text, I want... Uh, I am primarily concerned with the compatibility of our lives in Christ with our tendency to envision and pursue our own greatness. Paul tells the Corinthian church that he cannot address them as spiritual men, uh, but as men of the flesh, just babes in Christ, ready only for spiritual milk, not solid spiritual food. And that is evidenced uh, by the jealousy, strife, and divisions among them. I know it may be hard for you to imagine a Christian church with jealousy, strife, and divisions, but uh, such was apparently the case. And then if, if that was uh, not enough tough talk, uh, we get this portion 
from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus famously decrees that anger is paramount to murder, that sexual lust of the heart is paramount to adultery. And then we really squirm when he says that divorce creates adulterers and adulteresses. Jesus' crushing exposition of the law takes no prisoners among us. But we take these two passages together and we begin to ask, or at least I began to ask, uh, what, is, what then is Christian maturity? What makes a mature Christian? And what would need to happen in order for these Christ, uh, Corinthian Christians, or what would they need to acquire uh, in order uh, that they might be ready to move past the milk to the more solid spiritual food? For that matter, what is solid spiritual food? I think it's interesting that these two passages are given together in the lectionary because it's rather intuitive to assume that the road to Christian maturity is fundamentally moral. So you're not ready for solid spiritual food because there's jealousy, so what's the solution? Quit being jealous and you'll be ready. Or... Anger is the same as murder. So in order to be a strong Christian, stop being angry. Or lust is the same as adultery. So in order to be a mature Christian or to mature in Christ, train yourself to stop lusting. Perhaps good advice, but that is not what Paul is saying. Now Paul is saying that he uh, can tell that the Corinthian Christians haven't matured in their faith because of their, the visible jealousy and strife and division among them. And he is also saying that, the, that Christians should not act in those ways. But he is not saying that the mere absence of jealousy and strife lead to Christian maturity, but rather the other way around, that Christian maturity leads to the absence of jealousy and strife. Now, honestly, we, we wanted to work the first way, the intuitive way. It would it'd be a lot easier, at least to imagine. It would be more measurable, perhaps more glorious, if I could just simply conquer my anger and my wandering eyes and then call myself a strong Christian and wait with eager expectation for the angels to come and carry me on their shoulders off uh, amid the, the shouts of the crowd and into the Heaven's Hall of Fame. So... And that's the way it would be if Christianity was about us and what we're supposed to do. And frankly, when we envision a great Christian, isn't it typically someone who is morally upright? But Christianity is not about us and what we do. And therefore, neither is Christian maturity. Christianity is about Jesus Christ and what He's done. That's the gospel. That Jesus suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. 1 Peter 3.18 And therefore, Christian maturity is not a graduation from the gospel onto bigger and better things, but a process of stripping away everything that we try to add to the gospel. So why do I get angry? Just last night, after I'd been working on this very sermon... Uh, we put the kids to bed, and Amy prepared a really beautiful, delicious meal. It was beautifully prepared, and she handed me one plate, but I'd already uh, seen the plates, and, and I, my first thought was there was more steak on the other plate. And, um, and she said, 
teasingly, very just teasingly, said, uh, you're supposed to ooh and ah. And I got annoyed. I was still thinking about which had more steak. And um, I mean, if, I, if I'm angry because I haven't gotten what I wanted or what I think I deserve, or if I'm angry because someone didn't do what I thought they were supposed to do, or told me how I was supposed to feel, isn't, isn't there at least on some level a dark, unnamed belief that Jesus isn't fully in control of my life? Or that Jesus' blood doesn't quite cover the thing that is making me so angry? Or, particularly for me last night, that His cross and resurrection don't quite meet the insecure place in me that feels so threatened? So Christian maturity isn't about developing some sort of glorious inner peace and strength so that you won't ever get angry and therefore you'll be acceptable to God. But rather the solid food of the gospel is about the confession of our anger. Admitting our utter weakness, our need of a Savior constantly and rehearsing to ourselves over and over and over again the truth of Christ's presence and His sovereignty through every nook and cranny of our lives. Because it's about Him. It's not about us. Though perhaps the slow fruit of intimacy with Christ and the growing uh, trust in Christ just might, in retrospect, we might see a decrease in anger. Or another example, why do I get jealous? Why do I get jealous of what someone else has or what they have achieved? Isn't there almost always in there a lack of contentment with what God has given me? Or a feeling that God must not love me as much as He loves that other person. Perhaps and that is also coupled with a feeling of uh, that I am not getting what I deserve. Jealousy is almost always the child of pride. And C.S. Lewis calls pride the, anti, the anti-God state of mind. And so the solution for jealousy isn't just to get a hold of yourself and stop feeling jealous, because then you'll just feel jealous of people who don't appear to feel jealous. The solution to jealousy begins with confession. Confessing our jealousy and continuing to look at Christ and His finished work on the cross, thinking deeply and seriously and deliberately and fondly into His provision of Himself. And over time, our love for Him begins to perhaps grow and and outgrow uh, our love for those other things, our need for those things. Perhaps a fruit of that might be that down the road we begin to look for opportunities to share the gospel with people who have less than what we have. But beneath every sin, you can just go down the list, beneath every sin uh, that we struggle with or idol that we hold on to is a place where we don't believe the gospel. Do you struggle with pornography? Or materialism, or worry, or a need to control, or guilt, or on and on. It's just, it's only the gospel. God's message of freedom and reconciliation in Christ, only the gospel that can bring freedom uh, in those areas. There is no spiritual food more solid than the gospel itself. The milk that Paul is talking about is simply coming to terms with the truths of the gospel. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. The reality of His incarnation with the atoning nature of His death. With the eternal promise of His resurrection and ascension. But the solid food 
The meat of Christianity comes when we begin to examine our life in light of the gospel. To see what we're still holding on to instead of the gospel. Or holding on to in addition to the gospel. And then letting go of those things in favor of the gospel. And friends, it's in that stripping away of everything that we try to add to the gospel. Where the, where the gospel begins to bring us uh, and free us from anger and lust and jealousies and divisions and on and on. And we won't maybe see it in the moment. We'll see it in retrospect. Freedom from the things that those idols have been producing in us. Now, where do, where do we see this in the text? Well, look at the life of Paul, who brought the gospel to Corinth, who founded the Corinthian church, the one who had a personal stake in the lives of the Christians there and the success of the church there. Couldn't he have pursued the greatness of his own legacy? Wouldn't he have had the right to put his stake in the ground to sort of campaign against those following Apollos to make his case for his own ministry? I think he would have had, in a sense, every right to do so, and yet he did not claim what might have been rightfully his. But instead, he looked to God in Jesus Christ, and he invited the Corinthians to do the same. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. But God gave the growth, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. But only God who gives the growth. Heavenly Father, we have so far to go in so many areas. And yet you have come so far to meet us with the gospel. We pray that you would give us grace to believe the gospel, to grow in the gospel, and to find the joy and freedom that you offer in the gospel. In Christ who makes it possible. Amen.